All right, we're going to go ahead and get started. Um, you guys are at the top of the class. We've been slowly weeding out everybody else. Uh, no, I think it's uh, vacation time, right? So we have a little, little bit smaller class, but hopefully you got a handout. Um, if not, I think Mark's got some in the back. You can raise your hand. He probably can give you one. Uh, there are also some up here on the music stand as you walked in. So if you want to grab one, you might find that helpful. So let me pray for us. God, we're thankful for another day, and we pray for your help. Uh, as we think about your word, we want to we think your thoughts. We want to think um, in line with, with your truth, and uh, we want to humble ourselves before you, and um, that you might lift us up, that you may um, grant us your wisdom, that you may grant us greater growth in humility and in a love for you and an adoration for you and your great works in redeeming us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so two reminders, just kind of before housekeeping type things before we dive into our topic this morning. Uh, number one is we are happy to um, have a time to field some questions. We know there certainly are going to be questions as people think these things through. And so we ask you to email those to either me or to Doug, and we'll come up with a time where we can um, try to answer some of those questions. So send us questions if you have them. Um, you don't necessarily have to just manufacture and make up questions. If you don't have them, that's fine too. Um, but if, if people have questions, we'd like to try to answer those. Uh, and then uh, second, I just want to also point out, um, you know, we're doing, I don't know how many, I mean, it's probably like 15 lessons we're going to end up doing. I don't know. It's a lot of, it's a lot of sessions all on the doctrines of grace. Um, just to be clear, our statement of faith, if you're a, become a member of our church, our statement of faith contains the primary things that we believe together. Now, there are certainly are more things than just in that statement of faith, right? Like, like you're not going to get off on a technicality for if you find some, like, orthodox doctrine that you somehow can now deny, and you're like, oh, the statement of faith didn't say it. Like, you know, I mean, the Bible is really, that's what guides us. The statement of faith tries to help summarize the main things we believe, right? Um, you can be a member of this church and not hold to the, these doctrines exactly like we're explaining them. Right. That, that's that's uh, now we're teaching them because we we as pastors do believe this is what we find in the scriptures, um, and and you you want us to teach you what we find in the scriptures. Um, now you may you may read it and and come to a different conclusion, um, but we just want to be clear that um, statement of faith is really what we hold to, and then but we want to teach the whole counsel of God. And on this topic, this is how we understand the scriptures, and so we're teaching it. Um, so I say that in case you're you know if you find yourself not fully in agreement. I don't want you to be overwhelmed. Um, it probably feels like, you know, it's a fire hose of this every single week. That's all I'm trying to say. I get that. But that's what this class is, right? I mean, so um, just hang in there. Um, okay, so doctrines of grace answers. This is just review beginning here. They answer the question, how does God relate to us in his saving grace? How does a Christian become a Christian? How, how does one enter into the kingdom of God? That's the, the basic thing we're trying to answer with doctrines of grace. And, um, there's other ways to answer it than the ways we've been we've been doing it, but the doctrines of grace, the 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 way that it's answered with with that uh, piecing together of different systematic theological categories, is that essentially God the answer it gives is God saves sinners, right? The emphasis being on God doing saving work. So you can see that in your handout. Um, this is all review, but number one, we are sinners. We are dead to God, hostile towards Him. Therefore, unable and unwilling to trust him for salvation. That is the setting of our hearts. Okay, that's the first thing we saw as we looked through this. The second big piece here is that God sovereignly chooses to show mercy and grace and give new spiritual life so that people will be, there will be a people that are saved. And so we can break that down in these categories. The Father elects 
a people for himself and predestines them for salvation. That's what Doug talked about last week, and we'll, um, that's kind of what we're picking up this week. Uh, we also saw the Son of God comes and atones for the sins of these elect, purchasing all the new covenant promises for them. Uh, in, that would include a new heart to believe. We saw that in um, Ezekiel, see it in Jeremiah, see it in John chapter 3. Um, the Spirit applies the work of the Son to redeem those who the Father elected. So we have the Spirit working in concert with the Father and the Son. So we have the Trinity fully unified in the work of redemption. That's what we're seeing in the way the doctrines of grace understands this. Uh, so that when the Spirit applies this, when we hear the gospel. So here's, here's the piece, and this is kind of what we're going to talk a little bit more about today. Do we have to hear the gospel and believe to be saved? Yes, we do. The Spirit works and applies the work of the Son such that He gives us new life, such that when we hear the gospel in God's timing, when, when it is time for our spiritual birth, we are in fact reborn. And we do in fact believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's true. And we are saved. And then we haven't looked at this piece yet. This will be a future week, uh, probably starting next week, I think, or happening next week. God will not lose any of those whom He saves, and um, those whom He saves will persevere in faith. They will not stop believing, um, ultimately, fully. So this leaves questions, and uh, we're going to look at one of those today that's directly coming out of the issue of election. And uh, so, it, so it's kind of a part two of election here, to some degree. Uh, and the question is, how should we understand God's sovereignty and human responsibility? Um, that seems to be one of the main questions. Are these two things compatible? And, um, you know, I think a, a lot of times when, when we begin this discussion— on doctrines of grace issues, right? How, what, what makes someone a, a Christian? This tends to be where the conversation starts, and we don't get very far, because it usually starts with, well, this is what freedom is. And so I'm reading this stuff about predestined. Well, predestined can't mean that God sovereignly elected these people apart from anything in them, and they would, in fact, definitely believe. It can't mean that, because that doesn't fit my definition of freedom. You're not going to get very far if that's where you begin. That's why we've sought to begin with the Bible. And I understand that you can have a different view than the way we presented this. And um, I'm not saying you're not starting with the Bible. I think, I think we're, but my, my, well, all I'm trying to say is we've got to start with the Bible. That has to be where we start this conversation. Then we work out the implications. Then we move into questions about, okay, so how do we define freedom based on what we see in the scriptures? What is the biblical definition of freedom? And so, so you see what I'm saying? We, we go from, philosophy is part of this, but we go Bible, and then Bible gives us the ability to make good inferences in philosophy, okay? That's, that's all I'm trying to say. So if we start out with, here's what I think freedom means, or here's what I think sovereignty means, right? You talk about hyper-Calvinism. Um, I don't personally know any hyper-Calvinists, but I'm sure there have been a couple that have existed and probably some that still exist today. And you may not even know what that word means, but but... It's kind of like on the other side of the scheme. They can start with, well, this must be what we mean when we say sovereignty. Therefore, there's not even a need to present the gospel. There's not even a need to call people to repent. I mean, they, that, But again, that can't be true. That's not what we find in the scripture. So we have to say, how does the scripture define these things? What do we find in the Bible? And then we work out the philosophical implications. So um, 
that's, that's what we're going to be doing today. Today, our goal is to look at some passages about God's sovereignty and human responsibility and how they fit together in general, not directly related to salvation. And then we're going to come and we're going to, we're going to zoom in. So we're going to kind of zoom out and then we're going to zoom in and talk a little bit at the end about how do we apply this in the issue of salvation? Because um, these, these pieces all fit together. And we're going to see that God's sovereignty and human responsibility are compatible. They are not contradictory in the scriptures. Um, so this ties into God electing us because we have to, we want to understand in humans, are, as humans, are we responsible? If God elects to salvation, are we responsible for the decisions we're making? And is God just? And in fact, it's helpful, and this is where we're going to begin. You can turn to Romans 8. It is helpful to acknowledge or to see in the scripture that when we rightly understand the doctrine of election, um, the question of justice does come up. If you've rightly taught the doctrine of election, you ought to expect that some people will say, is God just? And I think this is an argument for the position we've been presenting over and against, like an Arminian position, for example, where the whole goal of that position is to explain it right out of the gate in such a way that no one, our whole goal is to say, we don't want anyone to ever ask, is God just? Well, when Paul explains election and predestination, he says, are we to say, and we'll look at that, I'm jumping ahead of myself, but is God unjust? In other words, if it's properly taught, you ought to expect people are going to ask that question. And the only reason people are going to ask that question is if you're saying God is completely sovereign in salvation, right? If you explained it in a way where it was like you were completely sovereign for it, no one's asking that question because it was totally up to you, right? Okay, so Romans 8, 28 through 30, this is kind of review, but I think it's, it sets us off here in the right direction. Election rightly understood does raise the question of God's justice. Romans 8, 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Okay, so here's where we're, we're zooming in here. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So there's a foreknowing, and, and those who are foreknown are predestined. And we see near the end that those are the same who are justified. Now, in the book of Romans, how does justification come? By what alone? Grace alone? And, what, and specific, faith alone, right? The, you, the, the righteous are justified by faith alone. I mean, that's, that's been like the main point, essentially, for all of Romans. So when he says justified... He also means who are those, they are those who believe. You see what I'm saying? Both those things are true. If you're justified, you're believing. That's not foreign to the book of Romans. That's been the whole argument of Romans, okay? So, can foreknow, and I, I'm just really reviewing here what Doug said, but it's going to lead us into where we're going today. Can foreknow, at the beginning, that kicks this whole golden chain off, can it simply mean those who God saw would believe and therefore predestine them to be justified? It doesn't work for, and here's one reason I think it's, it's helpful it doesn't work. What's in between predestined and justified in your book, in the Bible? Called. He called them. This can't be a general call because we, no one is debating, who's, who's a genuine Christian, no one is debating the issue of, are we talking about universalism? Not everybody is justified. So election, so calling here is really describing the means by which this faith is going to come, I think, right? Um, 
So, what is this calling but a creation of faith? Since it always results in justification, it must be a sovereign act of God, this calling, by which faith is created, because you're not going to be justified unless you believe. So my point is, this golden chain, I don't really see any way around this that we're talking about God sovereignly electing his foreknowledge, therefore, is not merely a he knows some facts. And I think Doug did a great job last week showing us from Scripture that is not how this word gets used in other places in the Bible. It's not just merely a knowledge of facts. It, it is a foreloving, so to speak, that God foreloved such that these are the ones he's going to redeem. Now, he loves the whole world, that's true. But like we used the example earlier, you know, I, I can say I rightly need to love all the women in this church. I have a special, unique love for my wife. That's not contradictory. Right? God has a special, unique love in the way he chooses to relate to his people. And he's not wrong in doing that. And because why? It's grace and mercy. And that ultimately, by the way, is the answer. So anyway, so, so that, that's how I'm explaining this. That, that's what, what Doug said last week. That's what I'm explaining this. And to make this clearer that this has to be the way to interpret it, look down at Romans 9. You keep reading on, on Romans 9, and you see uh, he's still talking about election. And he says, though they were not yet born he said, and had not done either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. So we're still talking about election. Not because of works, but because of what? Him who calls. We're back to calling again, right? So what's the explanation? It's not what you do, not even your own faith. It is his calling. Who calls? She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. We're talking sovereign election. This is not just a category of election either. It can't just be, well, he elected this group he's going to call the church, and if you decide to exercise faith, then you can be counted in that group. That doesn't fit what we saw in Romans 8, and it doesn't fit right here. We're talking about specific individuals. Paul's talking about specific individuals when he talks about how not all Israel is Israel. His heart is breaking because, yes, the nation was elected, but not every individual in that nation was elected. There's a sorrow he has over the individuals that are perishing. So we see sovereign election, his sovereign choice. And if we have properly taught this and understood this, we ought to get the question we have in Romans 9, 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. If you have explained this doctrine as Paul is actually teaching it, people should ask some, not everybody, right? But some, you should assume, are going to ask the question, is God unjust? And again, I think this is a piece of, of evidence against the Arminian position. The whole point of that is to make people not ask that question. So what I'm saying is I don't think that, that, that election has been properly explained, if that, if that is what you're aiming at. Now, we're not trying to make God, uh, we're not saying God is unjust. In fact, Paul says, um, in, uh, by no means, verse 14, he's not unjust. Verse 15 and 16, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will, human will, human will, right? It's not, I'm not the foundation of, of my choice here in one sense, especially when it comes to salvation. It doesn't depend on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. God has mercy on whom he will have mercy. Later it says God is the potter. He's sovereign. He has uh, rights over his creation. So is God unjust? Well, the foundational answer is no, because salvation is mercy. Justice means you get what you deserve. Right? That's what justice means. So is God unjust in condemning sinners and rescuing other sinners? He's not, because why? Because the atonement 
he would be unjust if there wasn't an atonement, right? There has to be some sort of payment. We already talked about that, though. But with the atonement, he's not unjust in deciding to show mercy and also deciding to let others continue running their course because they're doing what they want to do, and that's what we're going to elaborate on here in a minute um, is how these two things fit together. How, how do we fit together divine sovereignty and human responsibility? Um, so that's what we want to zoom in on now. We want to zoom in on that topic. And I want to show you, um, so actually we're zooming out to some degree, because we're zooming out of the issue of salvation just more broadly, and we'll come back and apply it to salvation here in a minute. But I want to look at some, um, can God be totally sovereign and people be responsible? Let's look at um, divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Exodus chapter 3. Turn to Exodus chapter 3. After this, we're going to be in Isaiah. So if you are flipping by Isaiah and you have trouble locating Isaiah, usually just grab a hold of it as you fly past it. Exodus chapter 3, verses 21 through 22. So I'm going to show you several passages that show the compatibility of God's sovereignty and the fact that humans are still responsible for what they do. Exodus 3, 21 through 22. Observe where God's sovereignty is spoken of and where and if the Egyptians act freely. Verse 21 of Exodus 3. And I will give this people, talking about Israel, favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty, but each woman shall ask her neighbor. And any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold, jewelry, and for clothing, you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So, so here's the outcome, you shall plunder the Egyptians. Okay, is God exercising sovereignty in this passage? He makes a promise that you can't make unless you, right? I mean, I can't promise so-and-so is going to do this, right? I mean, I might be able to make a good educated guess that they're going to do it, but I can't promise it because I, I, don't, I don't know their heart. I'm not God. I'm not, I don't have that sort of sovereignty. God says, I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and you shall not go empty, and you shall plunder the Egyptians. These are things God is saying will happen before they happen. The explanation is not, it is not, I'm omniscient and I know these things. It is true that God is omniscient and he knows these things. That's true. That's true, right? It's, it's just him saying, I'm going to do this. Um, but part of the, the explanation here too, though, and this is what we can't overlook, is what? I will give them favor in the sight of the Egyptians. So God's going to determine that it's going to happen. It's not just that he's omniscient, it's that he's going to make something happen. Um, but the Egyptians are going to give their stuff to the Israelites, right? I mean, that's what's, and we, we know that because if we kept reading, we'd see that's what happens, right? So if we ask, why did the Israelites leave Egypt with the Egyptian stuff? We have to give two answers to have a complete biblical answer, right? We have to. The, the answer, it can't just be the Egyptian women wanted to give away their stuff. That's part of the answer. Um, we can't just say God caused the Egyptians to give their wealth, although that's part of the answer. Both are required to explain what happened. Now, we're going to get to this in a minute, but just to be clear, I'm not saying both those things are equally causal. One of those is the cause of the other, but both are the explanation as to why did it happen this way, okay? Isaiah um, chapter 10. We're going to be in Isaiah here for a minute, so turn to Isaiah chapter 10. Isaiah chapter 10, verses 5 and following. During Israel's uh, history, um, we have a lot of um, rebelling going on. 
and God's going to bring judgment on them. And he brings judgment on the north and the south. And what we're looking at right here is going to be on the north, okay? Uh, he's going to bring the Assyrians, and the northern kingdom will fall in 722 BC. How are the actions of Assyria explained? Because Assyria is the nation that's going to invade, and humanly speaking, they are the ones who conquer the northern kingdom, okay? So let's read verses 5 and following. So I want you to listen for, for, for who's responsible. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger. So the my there is God. The staff in their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation, I send him. And against the people of my wrath, I command him to take spoil and seize plunder and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. But he, Assyria, does not so intend, and his heart does not think so. But it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off the nations, uh, cut off nations, not a few. For he says, are not my commanders all kings? And then he, he goes on and describes what he's trying to do here. But the point is so far, what have we seen? Who's responsible? God is. I'm commanding. I'm sending. He is the rod of my anger, like a, like a rod to beat Israel, right? The rod is not responsible for the beating in one sense. But in another sense, it is. And this is how human freedom works in here. Because look, what does Assyria, does Assyrian and their leader, do they intend to say, hey, listen, God, we are available to do your will. Here I am, send me. Is that what he says? No. He intends, his heart does not think so. His, his heart isn't thinking, I'm going to do your will, God. His heart is to destroy. Completely, zero compassion, wipe these people out. Right? Um, look down at verse 12. When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. For he says, by, my, by the strength of my hand I have done it, and by my wisdom, for I have understanding. So the point is, is the king of Assyria forced to do things against his will? This is his wisdom. This is the wise thing to do. This, he wants to do this. Is God just in punishing him? Yes, because why? He's not just a puppet. He's doing exactly what he wants to do. Is God sovereign over the fact that he's going to come in and invade Israel? Yes, all these things are true. So to give an accurate answer to the question of, when we talk about Assyria, you know, why, why did they do, are they responsible for what they did? And, and how did it happen? We have to say God is sovereign, completely sovereign, and they are responsible doing what they think is wise and right in their own eyes. Um, so those are the two features we see in this passage. Uh, let's see, I'm going to skip ahead here a little bit. Um, so they're responsible. Yeah, they're doing exactly what they want, right? The boastful eyes we see in verse 12, arrogant heart of the king of Assyria, um, which, by the way, is going to be important for understanding how does this start to work together. Um, I think you see the king of Assyria is doing what his heart wants, his heart is inclined to boast over Israel, right? So he's doing that which he most desires. So we have to give both explanations here for why Israel is devastated by the Assyrian army. The Assyrians chose to act freely out of their own prideful hearts, thus they are responsible. And God did it by determining to use the Assyrians to judge his people. Both are in the text. Both must be affirmed. 
All right, we're going to, um, for the sake of time, we're going to skip this next one in Isaiah and Ezra, but you can look at that. That just deals with Cyrus, who is a, a Medo-Persian king, and he's going to let the Israelites go back to rebuild their temple. And you see there clearly that he is chosen by God to do something, it, but he is not sitting there saying, um, God, what is your will? But he does exactly what God wills because he wants to. Okay? Um, let's go to Acts. Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, and we're also going to look at Acts chapter 4. Peter is explaining how Jesus ends up on the cross. So how is it that Jesus ends up on the cross? Look at, we're going to look at Acts 2.23, and then we're going to jump right away to Acts 4, because we have a, a, a second time he gives the explanation. So look at Acts 2.23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Okay, now look at chapter 4, verse 27. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. What explains Jesus ending up on the cross in this, these passages? God? I mean, predetermined plan, definite plan, right? So God has planned the details, okay? But is that the full answer? What else do we see? Yeah, so they're going to do whatever God has determined to do, but these are the people there, and we know they're responsible because if you look back at chapter 2, verse 23, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Lawless men means they're guilty. You violated God's law right? He doesn't just say, otherwise he'd have to say, if, if they weren't responsible, it would have to be you crucified and are completely not responsible for it. But he doesn't say that. He says you crucified them by the hands of lawless men, right? So we have to give both answers. These things have to be compatible. Now, these things are compatible, but who is decisively the cause? God is. It is his plan. He is the decisive cause. So we are not saying that this is merely co-agency, it's not merely that. It's not, it's not like, um, you know, Sally's driving her car, she gets stuck, and uh, Sam comes up, and he's going to try to help get her out, and he can't get her out, and then uh, he needs Fred, and so then Fred comes, and now they're able to get the car unstuck. Well, in that situation, you have two independent people working, and neither one of them really is the ultimate cause. You kinda ha they both actually are the decisive cause in getting the car unstuck. It wouldn't have got unstuck, right? But, but what we're saying here is different. God is the ultimate cause, and yet, that's not the full answer that's given. Do you see what I'm saying? So, so it's, it's slightly different. It's important to recognize that difference. God is sovereign and people are acting. So, so, so for the example with the Assyrians, it's not like God is saying, you know, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to judge Israel. I'm going to discipline Israel. And then he looks around and he sees the Assyrians and, he's, and he hears them you know, boasting. And he says, that'll work. That'll work. I'll make that work. We could, I, can, I can run with that. And then he make, right? No, the, the Assyrians were the rod in his hand. The axe, he says the axe head can't boast over the one who wields it. See the point he's saying, I'm, I'm sovereign. Even in the fact that you Assyria are going to do this. And yet Assyria is held completely responsible because they are completely doing what they most want to do when they come against Israel. Now, um, so these passages show God is sovereign over all 
and humans are acting freely in line with God's will. Now we get to the question of what sort of freedom are we talking about? We're going a little more philosophical, although I do think uh, there are biblical verses we could go to that would help us um, see it even more detailed than we've just seen it. There are other passages that um, probably help us work out some of the philosophy here. Um, If you're looking for something to help you do that, uh, Bruce Ware's book, God's Greater Glory, uh, would be my recommendation. It is uh, not, it's not an easy read. I mean, it's pretty deep uh, theologically as well as philosophically. Um, But Ware is really helpful because he does philosophy well, but he always starts with the Bible. Um, And he shows you from scripture where he's getting, and if he's making inferences, he's showing you the passage he's going to, and then I'm making an inference off of this. You might disagree with the inference, but at least he's showing you where he's getting it from in the Bible. He's not just starting with, here's my philosophical category, now I'm going to try to make the Bible fit it, right? Um, and I think good theologians on both sides of this debate, that should be what they're doing, right? That's what you're looking for. Uh, whatever view you end up holding, you want someone who starts you with the Bible, right? Okay, so defining biblically or freedom, um, biblically, or at least um, trying to get inferences from the Bible to help us do that. Uh, let me just ask this real quick. Say you go to an ice cream shop. Um, Graders would be the best one to go to uh, if you can, but you can't really do that here. You can buy it in the grocery store here. Um, and think of good two, two flavors that are your favorite. Um, what causes you to choose one over the other or none? When you're standing there in line, what causes you to choose one over the other? It could be a lot of different things, right? Maybe you just had... Your favorite is this, but you just had that yesterday, so you're going to pick your other second favorite. Uh, maybe someone tells you, you know, hey, this, this flavor tastes funny today, so you say, well, I'm not going to choose that one, even though I normally would have chosen that one. Right? There's all sorts of things that can go into that. So um, we'll come back to that illustration, but let's talk about two different definitions of freedom and see which ones uh, work philosophically, but more importantly, biblically. Uh, one is the freedom that we would define, we call the freedom of inclination. So what we're trying to do here is define what is human freedom? What, what, how should we understand human freedom and responsibility? Freedom of inclination or desire. This is to say that a decision or action is considered free, freely made, and therefore you're responsible for it, if the person is acting according to his or her strongest inclination or desire. Uh, so what we're saying is a person's internal desires, the character and nature of that person, the situation drives them to choose A over B, kind of like in that ice cream situation. There's all those factors going into it, but the compilation of all those things is going to give rise to a desire, and in that moment you make the decision, you're deciding based on your highest desire. That could change two minutes later, right? You see what I'm saying? Like if there were other circumstances, or if you had a different character to, your, to who you were, you might rob the, the ice cream store instead of buying ice cream, right? Your character, your nature matters too. Um, so, um, when all factors are weighed, the person's mind settles on what they most want or think is best. Libertarian freedom is another version of freedom, and this would say that a decision or action is only free, and therefore you're only responsible, if at the moment a person makes a choice, he could have made the contrary choice. In other words, nothing within or outside of the person constrains him to make choice A over choice B. Nothing can decisively influence you. You must be free to do the opposite at all times. Okay? Now, understand, this is philosophy. This is technical. There are books written on this, okay? So I'm just trying to give you a flyover to help you see that, that what we're talking about is, uh, is um, it, it matters. It's going to affect how you define freedom. That's all I'm trying to say. So libertarian freedom, I don't think, works for three reasons. And, um, and by the way, I think libertarian freedom is the view um, that like the Arminian position would hold. It, it generally is this version of freedom, okay? 
Now, here's the reasons I don't think it works. Um, first, philosophical objection. If there's nothing to make you want A instead of B, there's no, there's no decisive internal or external factor, how would you ever choose? Your reason for selecting A or B would have to be exactly the same reasons for both, and you would never be able to make a choice. So philosophically, I don't think this works. Um, you take a family trip to the ice cream store, you look over the selections, and you decide you want mint chip. Was it in your power to choose mocha chip? Well, I mean, if the situation was different, we could say yes, right? But at the moment of decision, the answer has to be no. So in other words, so let me give you an example. You might get up there, you were planning on picking mint chip, but then you overhear somebody say, hey, the mint chip tastes kind of funny today. And your second thought was kind of, well, I like mocha chip too. Well, you, might have, you chose mocha chip, right? But let's say everything was the same. You didn't hear anybody say that the mint chip tasted weird. And you know what? You haven't had mint chip in forever. And so all these things are all the exact same. If all the situation was the exact same, you wouldn't have been able to choose differently. You, because why? You chose what you most desired, which is the only way you can actually make a decision. Otherwise, you'd always be in limbo. You, you would never have a reason to pick something. And what I'm saying is there's got to be a reason of inclination. Something that your heart is inclined towards, or your reason, or your um, feelings. So if libertarian freedom was true, we'd have to say you could um, never, if everything is the same, circumstances, desires are all the exact same, when you get to the moment of decision, there'd be no explanation for why you chose one thing over another. Okay, I think that's helpful. I think that's probably the most complicated um, answer I'm going to give, so take a deep breath if you didn't like that. Um, again, there are whole books written on this topic. Second, theologically, um, you can't, I don't think you can consistently hold, consistently is a key word. I'm not saying people on the other side of this don't hold this. I'm just saying I think, it, I think there's an inconsistency. That's all I'm saying. Uh, I, I think you, you can't consistently hold to libertarian freedom and God's omniscience. Um, so the Arminian view says uh, God knows all. They, they, still for, they still affirm that, right? Now, now there, there is a heresy that does not affirm that, uh, but that's not the Arminian position, Okay. So, so they, they, they say God still knows everything. In fact, that's part of what we mean when we talk about election. He foresees what you're going to do. His omniscience is at play. There, once he sees that, he makes a choice, right? He, he elects you, okay? Um, now, if, um, I don't think we can consistently apply this uh, omniscience and, and still have it work out with libertarian freedom. Because if an all-knowing God knows something infallibly, it's locked in, right? What I'm saying is if God knows something will happen, which he has to, I mean, think about all the prophecies he makes. He's not a bookie who just tends to get it right because he just has more inside information than the other bookies. That's not the God of the scriptures, right? He, he foretells things because he knows things and he knows them exhaustively. Okay, so if, if the all-knowing God knows something, it is locked into place, it will happen. Thus, when the person finally comes on the scene, do they actually have libertarian freedom? If God foresaw they would choose A, do they actually, remember, libertarian freedom is you could choose either one. There's absolutely no reason to say you would have to choose one over the other. In that moment, libertarian freedom would require you to say, well, you could pick B over A, otherwise you're not actually free and responsible. But what do you have to do with omniscience? You'd have to say, God did not know exhaustively. He had a really good guess, but he didn't know exhaustively what was going to happen. If God looks down the corridor of time and sees that you're going to believe, can you at the last moment decide not to believe? Right? 
If so, God is not omniscient. If not, I don't see how you can have libertarian freedom as an accurate definition of what freedom actually is. Does that make sense? Okay, next one. This one gets a little even easier than that one. The biblical objection to libertarian freedom, um, I don't see how that accounts for what we saw in the passages we looked at earlier. It just doesn't, I don't see how that fits. Um, so, so what I mean is, does it simply say God knew the Egyptians uh, w- what they would do? No, it says, I'm going to give you their stuff. Well, the only way that works, it, it can't work with libertarian freedom. And what I'm saying is, I do think it can work with freedom of inclination. God so ordains and designs everything so that he knows because he has essentially caused that their highest desire is going to be to give their stuff. And they're doing it completely willingly. Acts chapter 2 and 4 with Jesus, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This is definite. This is planned. He ordains it. It's not just that he knew it. It's that he ordains it. Could those who nailed Jesus to the cross have chosen contrary to that? Could they have chosen not to nail him to the cross? It was the definite foreknowledge of God and plan of God. Um, and they did, and they're held responsible. What I'm saying is, I don't think the libertarian version of free will works with those. I do think the freedom of inclination does. Okay? Now, there are other passages I think that we could go to to look at freedom of inclination. I feel like I haven't, I know I haven't completely defended that as well. Uh, There are other passages we could look at. But even if you came to a different conclusion than that, I don't know what category you would go to, but let's say you could find some other category. I still don't think libertarian freedom works. That's all I'm saying. Okay? Okay, so freedom of inclination fits God's sovereignty. Uh, I think the philosophical category, it deals with, with some of the issues we had philosophically. He can still be just over our sinful choices because we are doing what we most want to do based on our nature and the situation we find ourselves in. Um, Bruce Ware has a helpful illustration. This is just an illustration. Um, so like anything, you, you could push it and probably push it too far. But he says, you know, this is not completely foreign to us when we think about a sting operation. Right? In a sting operation, the police do not, I'm going to quote from, from him, the police do not cause or coerce the criminal to commit the crime, but they do intentionally provide a setting in which the criminal, out of his own nature, will have the opportunity to develop a strongest inclination to commit the crime. The police do not cause or coerce the criminal to commit the crime, but they do intentionally provide a setting. Um, Let's see, uh, when these, this operation is done correctly, the criminal is not coerced, nor is he caused to commit the crime. Rather, he presented, he's presented with a setting to which his own nature responds in the way that it does, wanting most strongly to carry out the illegal activity. The criminal then was free. He did what he most wanted to do, and he was not forced or coerced in the process. Um, so we're not talking about entrapment. We're talking about a sting operation. I think, that's, I think that's a helpful illustration just to see, okay, how can this work? Um, it is just an illustration, right? That's not the language the Bible is using. So um, just take it for what it is. Okay, uh, now how does this apply to the issue of salvation? Let's zoom back in. We've done a more general look at uh, sovereignty and, res- and responsibility. I want to zoom back in and think about applying it to salvation before we end. Freedom of inclination means we act in line with our desires, which are shaped by our natures. Um, so, what is human nature like when it comes to relating to God? Like just born into it, human nature. Dead, right? We are dead to God. Now, does this mean that we aren't living and making free choices? I mean, Ephesians 2 says you're dead to God, and then it doesn't go on to say, so you just sit around catatonic in a chair. 
doesn't say that. It says you were acting in the passions of your flesh, carrying out the evil desires of your mind. You're, you're acting. But, but your nature is such that your actions are all what you most want to do is all about opposite direction of God. Even the religious things you do were not really aimed at glorifying God because they were not done by faith. So we are dead to God. We are not wanting God. If we are to believe then, which we must believe to be saved, that's true, right? If we are to believe and be saved, how can this happen? Well, now we're starting to see, I mean, this makes sense, right? He's got to give us a new nature. He's got to give us a new heart that is inclined towards him. Thus, God must, in salvation, because we are dead, he must directly and sovereignly act to create in us new life and new desires of faith. Um, 1 Corinthians 1, 18, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. So again, that's the deadness. They see it as folly. No one is forcing them to see it as folly. They look at it and they say, that's stupid. I'm not going to believe in Jesus, right? But to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. God is supernaturally creating life so that we see it as good. Chapter, uh, verses 23 and 24, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, so those who are called Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Something happens to where we are inclined to say this is wise, whereas before we always said this was foolish. In both cases, we're doing what we most want. What is the difference? It is that we are called, we are given new life by God. That's, that's the difference. Lydia in Acts 16, 14, one uh, who heard the gospel was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. Now, just to be clear, worshiper of God, she's not a Christian yet, right? She's following the Old Testament scriptures. So she's not born again yet. And, and in this transitionary period, she's not saved because Jesus has come on the scene. She needs Jesus. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Here's a quote from Spurgeon um, that gives personal testimony to how this works out. So all I'm trying to show you is God must sovereignly work. That is the bottom explanation of everything. But yes, you have to believe. You have to see it as wise. The gospel is wisdom. That's true. So I'm trying to show you your experience is it fits with what the scripture says. Spurgeon says this, the thought struck me. How did I come to be a Christian? I sought the Lord. That's his first response. I sought the Lord. But how did you come to seek the Lord? The truth flashed across my mind in a moment. I should not have sought him unless he had been, there had been some previous influence in my mind to make me seek him. I prayed, I thought. But then I asked myself, how came I to pray? I was induced to pray by reading the scriptures. How came I to read the scriptures? I did read them, but what led me to do so? Then in a moment, I saw that God was at the bottom of it all and that he was the author of my faith. And so the whole doctrine of grace opened up to me. And from, the do from that doctrine, I have not departed to this day. And I desire to make this my constant confession. I ascribe my change wholly to God. So um, I think that's true. Now, there's an asymmetrical thing going on here. And um, so... When it comes to our salvation, we're dead. The only way we get a new inclination to, so when we talk about salvation, right? The only way we're gonna get a new inclination to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, to see him and the gospel as wise and beautiful and trustworthy and delightful is if God gives us a new heart. I think we've seen that. So God, and that's gonna require direct supernatural imparting of new life by the spirit of God, okay? When we are, if we, for those that are perishing, there's an asymmetrical thing going on here. It's still the same freedom of inclination, 
But God is not directly, in a sense, saying, sin. You're going to sin and you're going to like it. They already like it. We already like it. So is God just? He shows mercy to those who will show mercy. And by definition, that is undeserved. We can't say you're unjust because you showed mercy. I mean, definitionally, categorically, mercy is a free gift. Right? Is he just in condemning sinners to hell? Yes. Because they are fully responsible. They are doing exactly what they most desire. They are exercising freedom as, 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 as we can have freedom. This isn't just any category of freedom you can come up with. I think that we saw that earlier. Freedom of inclination. They're doing what they most want. Therefore, they are responsible. So when we describe our salvation, I do think we have to say, I owe it wholly, fully to God. And then at the same time, we recognize we had to believe. Right? These are not contradictory things is what I'm saying in the scripture. These are not contradictory things. Now, we could still ask other questions. We certainly have other questions about why is everybody not saved and things like that. Well, those, those are questions for another day. Okay? Um, but we see that God is just in all that he does. We see that the wages of sin is death. Um, mercy is not a wage that we get. It's a free gift. Grace is a free gift. It's not a wage. But if we, if we are under, under God's judgment, it's because we're doing exactly what we want. So it's also important to say this. If you're here today and you're not believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, you can't hide behind something where you're saying, well, I don't know if I'm elect. You can't do that. Repent and believe. And if you choose not to repent and believe, you're choosing not to repent and believe. God's not forcing you to do that. You're doing what you most desire in your unbelief. Don't, don't try to blame this on God because that's not going to work on judgment day. Repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. So, this has been a lot. I know that. Um, I, I hope it was helpful. I, I, the part of the reason I taught this is because I found it helpful um, in my own life in sorting some of these things out. I'm not pretending like I've given you answers for every question you have or will have, but I think it at least gives you some semblance where you're wrestling with this and the justice of God and human responsibility. It gives you something to say, okay, I, I'm, I can see in the scripture first how these two things have to be there, and I can start to see how the inferences from scripture get transferred into these philosophical questions I have to give me valid answers to these questions that don't deny human responsibility that is clear in scripture and they don't deny God's sovereignty that is all over scripture. That's all I'm trying to do. So hopefully I did that. If not, um, ask questions uh, through email and we'll put those on our question session. Let me pray. God, thank you so much uh, for your word. Um, God, we know these are heavy things. God, we're not surprised that we can't fully understand um, your mind and, and all these things and, and your workings and um, even our own sinfulness, God. You, you are infinite. We are finite. Not only that, we are um, in sin. Uh, even as Christians, we still have blind spots. Um, and so we so look forward to the day when we're in your new heavens and new earth um, where you've removed the blind spots of sin. We still know that we'll be in awe and there'll be many things we don't know because you are God and we are not. But we just pray. We pray you give us humble hearts. Um, give us humble hearts that even if we, we are disagreeing over um, how we perceive certain things, that we would be a people that are humble before you, humble before one another, loving one another, loving you, always going to your word, God. Help us to be a people um, that treasure your word, that value your thoughts above our thoughts, so that, um, that we always are, are pursuing the same ultimate goal, even where we find uh, disagreement, even where we find questions in our own mind. 
We thank you for loving us. Thank you so much for redeeming us. We recognize we totally did not deserve it. You've been so merciful. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.